Hi, I'm Pete Seligman, and this is season four of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, we hosted the first ETA forum at Manly Beach in Sydney, Australia. So in this season of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you the audio from each session of the forum. At the beginning of each episode, I'll provide an intro to the speakers, and then at the end, I'll share with you the key messages and insights that I took from each presentation. If you were there on the day, these episodes will provide a good opportunity to reflect on your learning. If you weren't able to join us this time, even though you missed the networking, these episodes are a good summary of the content shared at the event. I hope you enjoy them. You need to be saying, I'm doing this deal unless there's something in front of me that's actually going to kill it. Because what I find that does is you get to a point where, and it's to the point of working through with the vendor and being in partnership with them, there's no doubt you'll find all sorts of stuff. It's about saying every single thing I'm going to find is going to be a hurdle, not a roadblock. And I'm going to look for things that I can do with the deal or negotiation or the structuring so I can continue moving forward because I am doing this deal unless something completely blows it up. And usually if you've gone into it with the right kind of structure and the right kind of flexibility and frankly, a bit of fat in your multiple, then you can usually massage your way through most things. So deal structuring is one of my favorite things about this process of search and business acquisition because it's trying to design, and it's probably the engineer in me, trying to design, you know, have some inputs in terms of what the buyer and the seller are trying to achieve, and then some outputs in terms of the deal structure that can best navigate the gap between those two. And so I really enjoy the concept of deal structuring, and that's exactly what this session is about. It's probably also why I've managed to convince Michael to allow me to sit on the panel with him. So this is a panel that's led by Michael Chu from Flywheel. He's a self-funded searcher based out of Melbourne, and he's going to be leading and moderating a group with Brent Goldman, who's a corporate advisory partner at Nexia Australia and has a real breadth of experience on getting deals done. Nima Setagat, who's a partner at HWL Ebsworth, so brings that legal lens. He's also one of the co-founders of Wayfinder Capital, so active in the search market. And me, um, and I guess I'm going to bring a bit of my perspective having done a few deals myself and am now kind of collaborating with searchers trying to get help their deals get done too. So I'll leave you in Michael's hands as he takes our group through this discussion around deal structuring and I'll come back at the end with a bit of a wrap up. You're saying there's some headline information but actually what's driving that information is that in there lies the risk Hmm. and then in that lies how you end up kind of protecting yourself. It's, it's all about the why <clears throat> and, and why. about why and where, why it's happened and why you think that's going to continue or not continue. So it's all about the due diligence through that process. Yeah. I mean, to give you uh, sort of another similar example, it was a smaller firm bought by quite a large, we're working with a smaller firm on that one, but they had, um, well, some creative maintainable earnings adjustments, shall we say, that I hadn't seen <laughs> until uh, later in the transaction we were helped, brought in because the transaction was uh, falling over to help. Um, and uh, yeah, you looked at the maintainable earnings, it wasn't real, but there was no way they were gonna sell the business on the lower earnings. Um, so we had to have a fairly creative process around the earnouts and how, um, and this business was effectively, um, uh, it was liquor sales for want of a better word, but um, to a very niche market. And the buyer was wanting to pump up that segment. So they had a strategic objective to pay it. They really wanted it for the commercial objective. Our client at the time would only sell it for the right value. So we had to put a lot of structuring into how that their investment would come in and how their investment would drive sales and how that would get shared between the two parties for their contribution to get to the right value proposition. Um, and then COVID hit. So he, and this happened just before COVID. Uh, so then we had to renegotiate the deal because um, 
quite frankly, everyone knew that was a problem and it was uh, it, it wasn't going to work. So and they still needed that person. So there was a bit of indis- indispensability about the person in that as well, which is also probably relevant to this example. I think it's common common with a lot of the, the deals of the size that that we have is that there's relationships and other things held mm-hmm. in with the the person. How you mitigate that risk? Mm-hmm. Can I test my mic? There you go. How's that, Luke? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's good. Um, and also just make one more comment. I, I think um, the other thing about structuring, it, it's really, really important to understand. I mean, this is a bit know your enemy, right? Um, you've got to know what on the other side of the equation, like how are they being advised and how capable is their advice? Because um, not strangely, but importantly, the better the advice the vendor's getting, the better the process is going to be. There's absolutely no doubt. Like you, you might go in there thinking, oh, they've got crap advice. That's going to make it really easy for me to walk all over them, but actually, it just makes it really, really hard. So <laughs> you kind of want you kind of want them to have the best possible advice, so then they can speak the right language and actually come up with the. So understanding that early, and I've even been in situations with vendors where, well, multiple different permutations, but like where at, from the start, like you pull them aside and say, actually, you're going to need better advice than that, and I want you to have good advice. It can't be my advisor, but here's five other names. Um, or equally, I've been in situations where by the end of the deal, the vendors ditch their advisors and we're all just using the same ones Like, because they're just like, we just want to get this deal done. But is the it, advice is important. Brent, it actually comes back to your first point mm-hmm. in that when you're wanting to talk to someone sensibly about the problems mm-hmm. and get a sensible answer, they've got a bad advisor. They don't. They get just as emotional as the vendor and then mm-hmm. you can't actually get to a sensible outcome. And, and the, yeah. Brent, you see and speak with sellers all the time, both representing them and, and, and in buying businesses. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the time I'm speaking to sellers that have never sold a business before. In fact, running the, starting and running the business is the only thing that they've ever known from a professional career. Um, so they're unsophisticated and naive to the process. Um, there's, a, there's a business I spoke to in Brisbane recently that it's a distribution business. Um, you know, the first, one of the first things they said in the conversation was, was they told me about their cash flow spreadsheet that runs their entire business. And that they're, they're so proud about it. Uh, but I wanted them to understand about working capital and they they don't use a balance sheet, they couldn't create it and they couldn't produce the data. What um, what are the things that you've seen that are challenging that structuring with unsophisticated sellers and how do you go about, like do you just, ignore, just stay away from them and structure or how do you go about kind of getting from, okay, I just want to price my business and this is the price I've already got in my head to actually having the conversation about risk and then putting something that's, you know, that can get a deal through over the line. Yeah, so look, I think, I mean, it, every business and every transaction you go to is always different. There's always, you know, there's a similar process you go through, but everything's always different, the pressure points and uh, what what you're going to get. Um, I mean, I've always some, looked at some fairly large, sophisticated companies and what information we got was using go seriously. Like, how, how, did you, how did you survive this long apart from um, you were making so much money you didn't know what to do? So, I mean, I think with something like that, it, it, look, it's, it is hard. Um, you can often reverse engineer quite a lot of things from that. Um, uh, but then it's getting them to understand some of the, the concepts. So um, if it's cash flow one like that, you're probably in a better position because you kind of know where your cash is and you can kind of work out building cycles and things like that. So you can probably get your, your head around their, their cash flow cycle. Um, it's the ones where they don't, they just run a PL and they, they kind of run a PL by invoicing and you kind of go, well, that's great, but what's your balance sheet look like? Um, and uh, I mean, I, and then they start trying to do weird things like, and this comes back to an advisor thing again, actually, 
so this was one we were looking at and they came and they had all these ad backs and they were going, well, we, we only recognize things on invoice. And this was the accountant that was doing this. And said, so we're going to add the debtors. And go, well, okay, if you add the debtors and you've got to take last year's debtors off. He goes, no, but we collected them. And this kind of went on. And basically their profit that they were trying to sell on was more than their revenue. And we were going to go, well, if that's the case, we think you should keep your business. And suddenly the vendors were going, no, 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 it's all good. When look, we didn't do that deal because then they suddenly popped up the little conversation point they made and they had this other business on the side and go, look, you know, this is just never going to happen. But, um, but you know, there's, there's those kind of things that flow through. So it, it comes again to the advisor. Um, you know, those things can be overcome, um, but you, there's a little bit more work and thinking and a little bit more, I guess, lateral thinking around it. Um, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're badly run. It means there's opportunity. I would turn that around. Mm. So that actually, to me, would say, well, actually, there's opportunity. If it's good business, surviving, making money, then that to me screams opportunity to put in some processes and systems that you can actually drive growth out of it. So. And, and do you see, what, what's the mindset of a seller that that maybe doesn't have the same level of deal sophistication or any any experience. You know, I, I often see them just expecting a cash price and then, you know, maybe walking away. But is that is that has that been your experience or? Um, uh, it, look, it, it's it's varied. Um, but as a general rule, some people not lot of them are scared. So scared, yeah, 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 like I mean, they've built this up and um, and so they're scared about the whole process. So there's a lot of. Um, from both acting as a buyer, buying them and selling, just managing through that process and that fear factor. Um, it is a very emotional experience for them. Um, I think on the uh, side around their, their expectations, yeah, they all think they're just going to walk away, some more so than others, but there's always that. Most, actually, actually that's not true. Most know they're going to have to do a transition period and they're going to hand over and there's relationships. So most, most people know there's that, that part there. Uh, I was thinking back to Nick's point. I mean, the ones I'm looking at something now, and he thought he would just basically one page would give him X million dollars, and he'd just walk away, no warranties, nothing. So there's been a whole educating this guy on the process that actually, no, you, you, we need to do some diligence. We need to understand the numbers. You need to give us some warranties if you want this business mm. bought. Um, it's not big dollars, it's big dollars for the buyer. Um, and, you know, he thought it was going to be a one minute exercise just give you a piece of paper, give me cash, and we'll walk away. Um, so that's still going because he then suddenly tries to change the price and things like that and mess around. And that's a classic one, actually back to expectations. He just wants to walk away, which there's no way you would do this deal unless he was just walking away because you wouldn't want that person anywhere near your business going forward. Um, but yeah, so it does vary. Um, but I think fear and the emotional connection and getting them over that, whichever way you're working, is the biggest challenge in any of those transactions. And, and I was just going to say, yeah, go for it. I was just going to add to that, even as a buyer, it's, um, it's a worthwhile exercise to ask your advisors, well, what does this deal structure that we're proposing look like for the seller? Um, what's their net cash position after this deal's done? Because if the seller is somewhat less sophisticated or less familiar with you know, what are seemingly quite complex um, structural elements like an earn out, uh, where they're expecting just to take all the cash off the table day one, it's important to be able to articulate why that works for them, whether there's, you know, you're managing the tax timing as to which they have to pay tax or if it's likely that they can access exemptions um, so that they can conceptualise that day one, I'm getting X amount, um, year five, I'm getting Y, I can manage the the timing at which I have to pay tax on these amounts um, on a net basis once this deal is done and dusted, I've got this in the bank. 
and the tax the tax is a huge thing right which comes up all the time yeah. which surprisingly they don't think about enough and often they go to market thinking they're going to do an assets deal when completely a share deal is going to be better for them from a tax point of view oh absolutely for example so yeah I, I and you know to give you an extreme example on one deal with a searcher we we built a whole financial model to just just to show that seller what they're getting on a year by year basis um 12 months later they came around and did the deal but it just it's an iterative process um, that you have to be somewhat patient in sometimes because these deals take time in this segment of the market so the, so there's a this is interesting because i haven't done this before but there's a there's a, essentially a, an education and building a vision for what the outcome is going to be for the seller mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah it's it's i think that's really important actually yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the way you communicate how the deal will practically work. And, they, and won't, they won't have that expectation uh, themselves. I'll, I'll use this opportunity to restate the W word that you just used previously, being working capital, which is the biggest deal killer out there mm-hmm. um, because it's the most misunderstood kind of function, like in small, definitely in small business, probably in big business as well. But it's the one that um, the sellers always misinterpret around the impact of what it's going to like if you were to do that model actually showing them what the impact of whether lockbox or working capital mechanism is going to have on their cash flow and what they're actually selling so i mean we probably can't get into the details no, no, of working no, capital I, right now right I, I, but, I was just going to say but, sophisticated i've seen private equity houses yeah get that wrong called, so we had this cash yeah. flow for, and you, <laughs> yeah. went, you didn't do a working capital adjustment yeah yeah no i bet you're short by this amount of money yeah yeah, went, yeah. yeah we are that's your working yeah. capital adjustment so <laughs> so i think again it's like an early thing it's like check the advice they're getting make sure that their advisor at least has some semblance of an understanding of working capital. If they don't, go through an education process. If you can, they still won't understand it, will they, Paige? Um, so, um, so I just think that's another. It, there are a few really key things that um, go to the value of a business, particularly smaller ones where things like working capital are material to the EV, like much bigger deals working capital starts to become less material to the total purchase price sometimes uh, no, sometimes not no, 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 no. I've, I've, I've seen it um you know 100 million plus deals make a 10 percent swing on yeah consideration true. so true. It, it depends on the industry yeah. but it but it can be quite a big variation in you as a mm. buyer what you pay and the seller what they receive but so. the unsophisticated seller won't understand it mm. and uh, so starting early on that education yeah i guess to be really annoying um you got to be super flexible because you just mm. don't know what is going to be uncovered as part of your DD process. So you could start this deal, get through commercial DD, and you're like, yep, I've got the U Butte structure for this. And then your accountant gets in there, quality of earnings are nowhere near what you thought. So you're going back to the drawing board to manage that risk. Then your legal advisors get there and they say, oh, this asset deal that you thought you were doing, good luck getting all these contracts um assigned and so you're thinking wow i've got to go back to the drawing board and do a share deal so that flexibility and not necessarily being wedded to a structure is really important but the narrative is the one thing that is constant throughout that because you're constantly identifying why am i doing this structural element it's because of this reason you're 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 satisfying yourself as the acquirer or the searcher you're satisfying your investors' interests, and you're also justifying it to the sellers. And so just just adding to that, I think that flexibility is really important in this segment of the market because a lot of the pros, well, the contracts will be undocumented, the financial processes will be weak. So due diligence is always going to throw up something. Even the best run companies, due diligence always throws up something. But in these, you just you know you're going to get a whole heap of things, and then you have to really work 
really work with the vendor to work them through, understand why it is and come to a resolution together because it's going to take compromise from both of you to get there at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's interesting. We might touch on that that now. You know, I've there's lots of sellers that I've called and spoken to and they've said, yeah, we, we were going to sell a year ago or two years ago, but we, we didn't sell. And I said, why didn't you sell? Well, we agreed on a price and, and the terms that we, so we agreed that and then we, they went through and they, they did all the diligence work and then they changed it on us, mm. right? It, it's, it's remarkable how many times people have tried to sell business and that's come up. Um, so that probably gets to, you know, part of what we're talking about has been how do you educate and set expectations, but then how do you, as a buyer, run a DD process and then manage the structure or how does the DD process influence the structure? Because I think that's kind of, it's pretty critical to be able to get an outcome at the end when you are going to find problems during the during the process. Email yeah. question for you. Absolutely. I think it's a really good point. And, um, you know, it's important not to jump the gun when you're running the DD process. Obviously, start with your head, so your letter of intent and have it sufficiently flexible on what you think is the headline price and structure. Um, but then always get your accountant involved first because I think that, and Brent, you can talk to this, the quality of earnings, it should be the real first cab off the rank because if what they're saying is is there isn't actually that fundamentally can change the deal and it can also save you a lot of costs by activating your further conform confirmatory dd too early yeah quality of earnings i think the other things is there's pretty um so with the quality of earnings in here we're talking about there'll be generally personal expenditure going through probably some people not paying salaries that they should be getting paid and things like that. So they're the common ones you see coming through. Um, and there'll be things they just haven't processed properly, like you know they're not recognizing revenue in the right way or things like that. So you're trying to look at peer groups and going, well, this is completely different. So trying to get light for light. The other thing I would just say is things to do with people. So half of them won't have like their leave provisions on the balance sheet and you're taking all that on. If you've got like a 30 year old company, like you said, you have lots of long service leave. So you could be taking on, you know, two or $3 million of liability um, that there's going to be a sudden shock to the, the vendor. Um, so th those kind of things as well, probably there's a few kind of little nuances around private companies, particularly in Australia, that you need to get get your head around before you go into them. Yeah, yeah. my contribution to that kind of com conversation would be more around um, kind of the buyer mindset. So I feel like um, <laughs> I always love analogies, right? So I'll just use one. Um, so it's like when you go skiing, right? So for any of you that ski, so when you're at the bottom of the lift, you're at the bottom of the mountain, you're about to get on the chairlift, you might be thinking about all the runs you're gonna do, right? So this is when you're just seeing this deal for the first time, you think, yeah, I might like this business and you start due diligence. So you get on the lift and you're going up the hill. Um, then you get to the top of the hill and you've, you can actually see the business. So you're through probably commercial DD, like you understand the business, you've done your Q of E, like you now need to get into the confirmatory stuff and you start skiing down the hill and your options start to get fewer and fewer. So like you go past the green run because you think you want to head for the black run. By the time you actually get to the point where there's no more options, you either are going to do it or you're not going to do it that's when you kind of need to commit. And, it, and it's the same when you're skiing, right? You can't be half committed to having a crack at that run that you want to have a go at. So your mindset changes at that point and you need to be saying, I'm doing this deal unless there's something in front of me that's actually going to kill it. Because what I find that does is you get to a point where, and it's to the point of working through with the vendor and being in partnership with them, there's no doubt you'll find all sorts of stuff it's about saying every single thing I'm going to find is going to be a hurdle, not a roadblock. 
and I'm going to look for things that I can do with the deal or negotiation or the structuring so I can continue moving forward because I am doing this deal unless something completely blows it up. And usually if you've gone into it with the right kind of structure and the right kind of flexibility and frankly, a bit of fat in your multiple, then you can usually massage your way through most things. So I think there's this real, you need to be really clear. And I mean, Mac earlier in the day was talking about the roller coaster and the emotions and all that sort of stuff. You really need to be clear about the mindset changes you go through a deal. And the further you get down that path, the more committed you need to see yourself as being. Because I can tell you a thousand reasons why I shouldn't have done any of the deals that I've done. Because there's always a reason why you should pull out. So you need to try and find a reason why you can continue. I think it's great. Great advice. So, time-wise, we're, um, we've got time we could probably do some questions. questions. Yeah, great. And then okay. we'll wrap up in five Okay. Uh, we've got some time for questions, if anyone has any. Yep. Uh, if you were talking about how much work you do to educate the vendor on their tax position or their, are you, how, how deep are you going on that on the deal? Suppose that, and that probably goes to the industry. How much do you do that? Yeah, so I'd say it's really on a case by case basis, and you've got to remember who your client is, right? Um, so you can only provide suggestions as to what you think is um, the position that they're in, but you always have to say, well, you know, this is our contribution that you have to go and independently verify because you can find yourself in hot water if you go too far. Um, and it's to Pete's point, like you're doing them a favour by, mm. by making suggestions if you think they're being poorly advised um, because it's in everyone's interest. I think, I think the way it comes out most is when um, particularly you'll, you could find people in some weird structures because that's just where they'd be put into and then getting out of that weird structure could have some adverse tax consequences. So pretty much everything we ever do, we always say, look, this is the structure we're looking at, but we're happy to have a conversation if it's going to create adverse tax impacts. As long as it doesn't impact us, we're happy to make, do something structurally best for you. But ultimately, they've got all sorts of other personal assets and things going on. And that's, you know, you're talking small asset rollover reliefs, you're talking things like that that they might have. Um, but someone can only do that if they're really advising them properly. But it's trying to push them to get that advice early so that you know that it doesn't come up as a big issue right at the last minute. And they go, oh, hang on, I've got to pay all this tax. And if I've done it this way, then and everyone's a bit too committed by that stage. So. And I guess um, to give you a real life example, I was acting for a seller who was told by the buyer, this is a U-Butte structure that you know, you're going to get a great tax outcome on. Um, but lo and behold, it was actually the complete opposite that uh, we had to rework. So you have to have that element of an independent check on anything that's being suggested. Question about valuation. So if we're thinking about the businesses that we're looking at, and then we come to a point of exit down the track, and we talk about businesses on the way, maybe being around two and a half to five times more because people are around numbers in conversation for the day. When you start looking at the exit point, what really drives that value so that multiple is actually going from a five to a seven to a ten or something like that? What are the key drivers of that? So if you want to go yeah, first. Uh, so for, for more, so you're talking about multiple arbitrage. Basically, so, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a few things really. Um, size. So, you know, if you're buying something at 1 million, there's only so many buyers. I always think you get to about 5 million, you get hit one hurdle because you can start getting all like, the small private equity houses in and, you know, you get more interesting because you've got a better cash flow. Um, so, you get size arbitrage by more, more potential buyers. Effectively, your liquidity comes down. 
your size gets better because you're losing reliance by that time on customers, people, you know, all those kind of risks of the business should start to be getting reduced. Um, so they're, they're kind of probably the two big ones. You're in a bigger market, bigger pool of buyers, so you reduce your liquidity and then um, liquidity discounts and your size, you've de-risked the business by um, getting rid of certain reliances, which usually customer, people, supplier type reliances. Yeah, the thing I'd add would be kind of operational leverage. So, um, you know, one to two million earnings, you've probably still got a fair amount of key man risk in there. Um, you know, reliance on the owner, all that sort of stuff that you should be able to get rid of. So definitely like from a searcher's point of view, the objective is to make yourself redundant, like that's your whole job. Um, and if you're not thinking about how to make yourself redundant, then you're not preparing yourself for exit. So I think that you, you get a turn at least um, if not two on that, you'll probably get a turn or two on, on the scale factor. Um, I think um, things like um, diversification of geography, customer-based supply chain, all that kind of diversification of all those different inputs and stakeholders is, is really valuable. And then you can start to look, particularly in, in this market and, and even some of the discussions this, uh, today, is um, technology. So, um, which does think like, you know, Nima's comment about the people piece is a really good one. So if you can start to get more productized um, or technology-based revenue into the mix, it doesn't need to be a massive proportion, but it'll suddenly mean that like, you might be a services business, but you've productized some of your services. So then the products you can sell, you might've even automated some of those. So then you've got this other revenue stream, you probably get another you know, a little bit on that too. Yeah, everyone's a SaaS business now. Everyone yeah. I come to. Yeah, totally. I've got a mining business. business and it's a bunch of dudes in high business. I call it SaaS. SaaS. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. And I guess what I'd add to that as well, talking to a lot of the leading PE houses in town, um, they don't like this part of the market because of mm. the scale that Brent mm. mentioned and because of the, well, the unsophistication of the management function, which is what Pete spoke about. So... That's why it's ripe for the picking for searches because searches have all the, the energy, the drive and ambition to grow the thing. And they have the uh, know-how and sophistication to really fine tune the management function. So if it's done right, you've got bigger players ready to come and uh, swoop up those businesses, which will be naturally willing to pay higher multiples. Yeah, we'll probably do one more. One more, anyone got a question? Well, thanks very much, panel. Thank you. It was really interesting listening back to that session again, having been a part of it. And I think that I really appreciated even more so the contributions that those guys made on that panel. I think that one of the things that keeps coming back for me, and even in some of the deals that I'm helping searchers with as we speak, the importance of really good advice on both sides of the table. Often the searchers pushed by their investors will make sure that they have great advisors around them, particularly as you get to the pointy end of a deal. But there's nothing worse than bad advice on the vendor side. So really doing whatever you can to try and encourage that vendor to be well advised just helps to grease the wheels for that deal. And it's not about necessarily trying to get a better deal than you deserve, but it's about trying to make sure that both parties are well advised so that you can have a rational conversation about the deal and the structuring and the risks and the opportunities. So good advice on both sides just keeps coming back as an important part of that deal structuring equation. And then the other thing really is about being flexible, but keeping it simple. You know, as I think I might've said 
during that session. I enjoy deal structuring so much that sometimes I get a bit overzealous and think about a thousand different mechanisms you can put into a deal structure. But often what you find is the closer you get to the perfect deal, the further you get from a simple deal. So just making sure you get that balance right is important and maintaining an open dialogue with the vendor and all the advisors involved is a really critical kind of aspect to that process. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that session. I know I did, even though I might've been a bit biased and um, I'll see you at the next episode.